Well, um, Mr. Spencer, it's likely to you. I would like you to know that I, well, I appreciate what you said and what you're a trying to do. And believe me, I don't say this lightly. I am absolutely determined that I won't touch another drop. Not another drop I won't touch, I won't. Mr. Quill, I don't think you may realize, Mr. Spencer, what a big sacrifice this may mean for Mr. Quill. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Quill. Yes. Thank you, Mrs. Vizafli. We shall really have to do something about your equipment now, Mr. Quill. Well, that's very nice of you to think of my problems, Mr. Fazekerly. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll get you some poison. What? For your rats, you Oh, know. yes, I see. In January 1957, The Goons recorded what I consider to be one of their best ever episodes, The Rent Collectors. And on that particular show, they had a special guest star. It was the actor Bernard Miles. And I haven't actually got official verification of this. I'd like to think that the reason that Bernard turned up in this particular show was that around this time, he and Peter Sellers were filming The Smallest Show on Earth, which is considered to be one of the best of Sellers, what we now call his black and white British period, his his early films. Uh, this week, we are talking about the aforementioned smallest show on earth, and I am joined once again by returning guest Chris Diamond. Uh, Chris most recently joined me to talk about the film The Ghost in the Noonday Sun and the um, the, the 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 twenty sixteen documentary film about the making of that disaster movie, uh, The Ghost of Peter Sellers. And Chris wanted to come along today to talk about The Smallest Show on Earth because it's a film very dear to his heart and and to mine, to be fair. And we talked for such a long time, we're talking probably in total about two and a half hours, that I've decided actually to um, chop this into two parts. So uh, this part, this week is part one, obviously, and naturally next week will be part two. So let's just drop into the conversation where me and Chris start talking about the film. But the 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 smaller show on Earth made a really really deep big impression on me because it's a it's just a superb film. It's certainly one of his best, and one of his best performances. It is, and a very good performance because he's just playing he's just playing William Cobbler's. Yeah, more or less. Um... Well, it's the cobbler's voice down to it. Well, it it's is exactly that. It is, and the, the weird thing is, because I'm watching it, I watch, I rewatched it the other day. It was um, what, an hour and a half of it was thoroughly enjoyable Sunday afternoon viewing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then, and I made loads of notes, and then I was just doing additional, like I like to do, additional research, and and among the research, mm-hmm. and I will come back to him later. The um, the the book that you know. Um, always comes up on this podcast the life and death of Peter Sellers Roger Lewis Indeed. Um, and in that he a couple of times he, he refers to the fact that Peter Sellers in, in The Smaller Show on Earth 
has a northern accent. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. But I, I, it's a, a rare slip. Mm. I mean, he's he's it, it, Roger. Roger, he's he's very good at the analysis of the character and of the setting and so forth, and where it fits into the the career and all that. But that that's a weird slip. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, so so Chris, obviously Chris, you you joined me previously. You've been on previously. Oh. Very well received. Oh. Double episode on on the 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 Farago that was Ghost <laughs> in the Noonday Sun and and the subsequent yeah. documentary. And you suggested that you might like to come back on and talk about the smallest show on earth, which is, in fact, it was sixty six years ago. Well, three or four days ago, it was it was released 9th of April, nineteen fifty seven. Good luck. And um, it was during the the period between the seventh and the eighth series of the Goon Show. So, yep. um, and Sellers was doing a lot in fifty seven. You know, not just this. He was appearing on television. He was appearing on the stage. He was touring all around, and obviously making films. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite films of all time is the nineteen sixty uh, film, The League of Gentlemen which mm-hmm. was the same team that made this, Smaller Show on Earth made The yep. Little Gentleman, um, Basil Deard and, and Michael Ralph. I had a little look around, you know, because Basil Deard is a name that you kind of know if you know these, this type of film. Mm. Uh, it, it always annoyed me, annoys me. There was a terrible, lazy cliche for a long time, I, not so much now, but in the past, where all of these films would be lumped together as either ailing films or ailing type or ailing esque, yeah, and and they're not at, at all because, in my mind, certainly ailing films are always about a crazy situation that people find themselves in that they've got to get out of, whether you know it's a, a, a heist or a a railway line that they've got to go or some problems like that. <laughs> uh, whereas films by maybe the especially like the Bolton Brothers or. Uh, the sort of Gilliatt and Launder kind of uh, type films are much more about characters and people and, and therefore I think they they last longer because they're not so attached to situations that are hugely out of date now. Yeah. So the sort of films that Basil Dearden was involved in are uh, my favourites of the you know type of those films. But when I had a look around it doesn't seem to have a terribly high reputation, Basil Dearden, or didn't. I don't know if that's been revised, uh, which I, which baffles me because a lot of the films he was involved in are are, are stone cold classics. Didn't he make Didn't he make quite uh, a number of social comment films like Sapphire and Did he do Violent Playground? He did indeed. Yeah, yes, he did. And but his best credit in that respect, I think, is. Uh, is a little gem that's almost forgotten now. The goose steps out, which was a wartime mm. propaganda film, really, which stars the incred- incredibly juvenile Peter Ustinov, who I think was in the, or was just about, or had just joined the Crown Film Unit, and he plays like a very junior Nazi. Uh, you know, supposed to frighten everybody, but the goose steps out is just such a great title. <laughs> But some of the other, if you look at some of the other names that are attached to this film, the, the smallest show on earth, mm. 
it really is an it's an extraordinary I mean apart from anything else the, the standout one is Douglas Slocum oh yeah yeah mm. uh, the cinematographer now Douglas Slocum I mean it's shot uh, exceptionally well uh, for a film of the type it's not a particularly high budget it's not a I don't think I don't think anybody at the time would have thought we're making an important film you know it wasn't nobody thought they were making a David Lean type film but uh, but it looks far better than you would than it has any need to if I could put it like that mm -hmm. especially the uh, especially the interiors the interior of the Bijou Kinema <laughs> is fantastic and for a, for a set because it's a set uh, it looks so utterly authentic and the lighting in it is just fantastic yeah, absolutely it, it just looks so authentic and did you think this so this is 1957 douglas slocum who at that point was i think was 43 mm -hmm. or 44 and then 23 years later is shooting raiders of the lost star yeah. <laughs> You know, it's just it's just the most incredible the most incredible career. So the, so Douglas Slocum's involved, so it looks beautiful, mm. obviously. Mm. And of course, but I was going to mention the other great credit. Basil Dearden's and weirdly spooky, of course, last credit is the man who haunted himself. Oh yeah. The Roger Moore film. Oh, yeah. You know about the guy who the, the car crash. Mm. Because Basil Dearden then died in a car crash. Oh god, did he? In a very, in, uh, yeah, yeah, in a, it, it's very, in the, you know, in a way that the film sort of almost predicts, it's really creepy. And uh, a friend of mine, my friend Craig, you know Craig? Yeah, yeah. We went to see Ed Roger Moore do a sort of live appearance kind of thing at the, in the theatre in Edinburgh. Mm. And he talked about the man who haunted himself as a favourite, which is especially of Craig's. And he talked, you know, he talked about how, you know, how spooky it was. And how odd it felt, you know that that, that that's what happened to mm. Basil after the film. Anyway, is, is, there must be uh, there must be some out there. There must be in the far far flung reaches of the the web. There must be some group dedicated to um, believing that there's some conspiracy or there's some oh, I'm sure. something <laughs> something behind <laughs> all that. Something connected. I mean, some of the other names that we look at. So, like you look at who, who wrote it, the smallest show on earth. So it's co-written by John Eldridge. And William Rose, mm. and this is a really interesting combination because, as you say, Basil Dean was involved in you know all these sort of because uh, he was a, a Ministry of uh, Information wartime guy as well. And John Eldridge, that's that's almost entirely what he did. He he, you know, films about the reconstruction of Cardiff and you know mm. uh, Sheffield, a city on the grow, and all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, post-war wartime and then post-war stuff. Uh, but William Rose is, is from Missouri. Yeah. And he wrote things like, guess who's coming to dinner? So I didn't know, if it sounds like I'm reading all this out, it's because I am, because <laughs> I didn't know any of this until I looked it up. So he, he's, he's been writing, like, huge Hollywood hits. And then you're teamed up, he's teamed up with uh, and, and John yeah, Elgin. He, he also, he, he, wrote, hang on, he wrote The Lady Killers and Genevieve as well. Oh, no, oh, well, let's just not hold Genevieve against them. <laughs> not a fan. Not a fan. Oh, oh Jesus. There's no, I don't know about you. I used to find 
it was almost nothing more depressing as a kid than a sort of bank holiday or summer in the morning showing of Genevieve, which was foisted on you as, look, oh, so it's such fun. Here's Genevieve and that bloody Larry Adler <laughs> uh, harmonica music and, oh, just little, uh, what do you call him, Kenneth Moore? Yeah. Huffing and puffing about in his little Mr. Toad outfit. Dear God, it was the opposite of anything. It's like, you don't got a George Ford before me, you put one. Directed by Basil Deer, didn't it? Oh, yeah, it wasn't <laughs> Kenneth Moore, right? <laughs> Kenneth Moore, in all his film roles that I've seen him in, he was perpetually cross, mm. slightly irked. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It was, yeah, irked more than cross. He was always befuddled. Mm. You know, so like if, when he was like in the, the uh, first Man in the Moon, you know, the plucky, he was always a sort of plucky little. I think uh, Matthew Sweet described him as having a meat and potatoes face. Yeah. Where he was always like, oh, look. But he was always that sort of British, oh, I'm getting through, I'm working my way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But he did that. Uh, some of his films are really good fun. The Sheriff of Fracture Jaws is a great film. I've not seen you it. You know, where he's the sort of, uh, he's a, uh, it's a Western, but he's a he's a sort of a travelling salesman for a sort of a ironmongery firm that's decided to make guns. And he lands up in this western town. It's great fun. Well, his his wife was and, his wife uh, was in a, his, his wife was in a western, of course, wasn't she? Yes, well, quite yes. <laughs> Angela Douglas is a carry on cowboy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, well, Kenneth Moore. Eh? Well, he do he knew, he did he almost did a Max Wall. He almost ruined his entire career by leaving his wife for for a for a young woman for Angela Douglas. Yeah. yeah. But the thing was a bit. I think his career was a bit like. By the time he did that, I think you would say career the way that Spike Milligan used to say David Lodge's had a career. <laughs> uh, it was he was certainly past his prime. <laughs> but uh, anyway, mm. uh, Genevieve, no, you're all right. Yeah. However, uh, so your man Rose is a big time Hollywood screenwriter from Missouri. It would be interesting, I've no idea, but we're interested to know if, if he ever actually did, you know, like a sort of sitting in the room back-to-back typewriters with John Eldridge who'd have to describe to him what a fleep it is <laughs> <laughs> and why everybody would run out quickly at the end of a picture before yeah, the, yeah. you know, before the, the national... So Eldridge must have been there, I would suspect, to add in all of the local colour, you know, to make it authentic. What I think is interesting about that as well is that it does show the uh, the expectation that the film would be broad enough to to do well in America, but it would have to do it would have to be authentic enough to do well at home. So you make your money here, and then what you make over there is an extra. It just gives it a bit more. I'm sure that I'm, I'm it, sure that's why. Right. Well, th- that's La- London and Gilead made money. That's the thing, though. In America, it was called um, checks notes. Oh God. Um, Big t- oh, it's terrible. <laughs> Explain this. Big time operators. Oh God. Why was it called that? And not. I mean, it's because 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 the title "Smaller Show on Earth" is a play on the greatest show on earth. Yeah, for God's sake. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, big time operator. I, you know, uh, why they changed the names of these films? As you say, when there's a perfectly serviceable title, completely beats me. Mm-hmm. But not only that, they always pick terrible, terrible 
alternatives. So, like, uh, one of my favourite films, Juggernaut. Yeah. You know, the Dick Lester, mm-hmm. director Richard Harris, Hemmings, you know, Robert Sharif, Roy Kinnear in a, what should have been an Oscar-winning performance. Everybody, Clifton Webb, every, great film. But it's called, I think it's called Terror on the Britannic. Is it? In the, in the, for America. What's wrong with Juggernaut? Isn't um in America? <laughs> isn't isn't North Sea Hijack called for the folks? Is it? I have no idea. Or just or just I mean obviously it's pronounced folks, but it's Oops. a double F, isn't it? That's his name. That's Roger Moore. Roger Moore again. Two, two small two small Fs. But uh, you know that's funny. That I was just saying to Craig the other day we were speculating what should be Tarantino's tenth and last film, and we decided it should be a remake of North Sea Hijack. Yeah, which is in itself a spectacular film. Mm-hmm. He's a cat loving misogynist. Isn't he, Roger Moore, and that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah. Oh, he's so great. So, Sam, Samuel great L. Jackson, I could see him in the, the Tarantino yeah. remake. <laughs> yeah, Harvey Keitel is like James Mason. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, uh, one of the worst, most egregious ones is uh, like The Rebel, which is like a perfect title for The Rebel, mm. the Hancock film. Yeah, in America was was called was titled "Call Me Genius." God, it's just crap. It's just crap. So anyway, leaving that aside, mm. I don't. Uh, big time operators, is, yeah, as you say, dreadful, dreadful title. Which I, I mean, I presume means it's supposed to be an ironic twist. Americans, of course, be known for irony, an ironic twist on them having. Them being small time opera, oh, it's just embarrassing. Because <laughs> uh, it is a beautiful written thing that the, the the script is superb. There's a couple of comedy notes that don't work terribly well, but I think that's largely going to Virginia McKenna. Not the best comedy delivery in the world. Right, Virginia, uh, Virginia McKenna kept reminding me, I kept thinking of, is it Marjorie in To the Manor Born, the Angela Thorne character? <laughs> <laughs> she, she reminded me of her. Yeah, so very jolly hockey sticks. Think of all the fabulous places that are just, just names to us now that we can see. Samarkand, Samarkand. Doesn't that do something to you? Doesn't the the, the very name? Oh, it's Sam- a beautiful name. Samarkand, San Francisco, Seville, Samoa, Samara. Tell me some more about Samara. Oh, darling. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's um, the brandy. I mean, Virginia McKenna's a good actress, and she obviously was a big star. You know, it, her character... Her character suits the uh, situation. Uh, so, the premise being, for the uninitiated, if not, why not, uh, a young couple, Bill Travers and Virginia McKenna, and that, who are an actual couple in real life. Mm-hmm. He's a, a struggling novelist. She's a housewife, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they're married, and they get a phone call to say that he's inherited from his forgotten late Uncle Simon an estate. They go to Slothborough, <laughs> which is a sort of... Never quite sure where it's meant to be. I mean, it's obviously meant to be in the north somewhere. Because uh, yeah, 
uh, Francis the Wolf and all the and, and the rest of them will have comedy and other accents. But they go along and there's a big giant swanky cinema actually filmed outside the Hammersmith Apollo. Uh, to give you a size of the sort of the scale of it. Mm. And they get all excited having been met by the by their solicitor, a very young and very uh, very svelte Leslie Phillips. And then they're disabused of the fact that that's the big cinema because actually they've got a hold of the Bijou Kinema, which is a rickety old flea bag between two railway lines. <laughs> Yeah, spe- especially is, built, uh, especially built, especially especially built exterior. Yeah, in Kilburn, <coughs> Kilburn. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's faulty bits and it's closed and it's not made money forever and it's got a whole load of debts and they are mortified and what are we going to do? Okay, so oh, so that's the premise. that's the premise. But I want to I want to just cycle back to um, you mentioned Bill Travers. Mm. Um, what a guy! Oh yeah, absolutely. But not not a natural comedy actor. I'm sure he never, no, never possibly not, never no. professed to being that. But do you do you think? I don't know though. But I, I kind of feel actually that, as I say, that the situation of the sort of fish out of water uh, kind of people. I don't think it calls for a very broad comedy performance. You need to have, I feel quite uh, ordinary and even quite staid characters for the eccentric characters around them to work. If everybody's crazy people, then it just becomes unrealistic because the the cast of characters otherwise are all very broad comedy characters. So you think you need some quite, uh, you know, you need a bit of white bread Mm. there. True. True. Uh, and I think Bill Travers is very good, but what Bill Travers does bring to it, which is about outlandish, which you can't help noticing, is he's huge. <laughs> he's so big. <laughs> I mean, I suppose after the war, most people in Britain were a little bit small. I mean, they're already historically quite small people. Anybody who's been at a second-hand shop knows that. But our vintage shop knows how tiny people were in the 30s. And then the war comes and people are a bit undernourished. And the Bill Travers is he's like he's like a, the side of a house. Yeah. In fact, the scene later on where he has to throw out three young, you know, sort of and you think that he would have any trouble he could hold them under his arms. <laughs> he is an, he is enormous. Fists, and he's got fists sort of big, like big hams. head and cleft chin. Mm. Like fists like hams to quote Pacoon. Mm. And uh like an enormous, like sort of leonine head. <laughs> he looks so out of place in amongst all these tiny people. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, that that in itself actually, I think, is, is I don't know, it somehow lends itself to the situation because he therefore look so totally out of place. And, of course, they, they profess him in Virginia, Virginia, they profess that what they really want to do is travel. They want to go to 
They want Samara and Samarkand and they want to do all these exciting things because they're still young. Obviously, it's the 50s, so they look like they're in their 60s, <laughs> but they're actually about 22. <laughs> but, um, well, the thing is, in real life, of course, so the, the, in real life, anyone that doesn't know who should know, if you listen to this, you should know this, but they went on to appear in the film. I guess this is what they're best known for these days, if they are remembered these days, for animal rights activities. Yes, and, born, yeah, like Born Free. Born Free, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, that otters one. It's the one with the otters. Um, <laughs> it's like a, no? there's otters everywhere. You know, like Ring of Bright Water. Oh, is that yeah. a, something to do with otters and weight things. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's but so he was thirty five in this, and he looks about he does look about fifty. But but uh, he was an extraordinary character, Bill Travers. Uh, so he was in the Gurkhas of the war. He was in the SOE and dropped into Malaya. He was on Odd Wingate stuff. I mean, he's a proper full-blown, you know, uh, war hero in the the total sense of it. And then somehow gets himself into films. And, uh, of course, his big film, uh, his most famous sort of lasting way, I think, is true to say for for Born Free, but his breakthrough film was Geordie. Mm-hmm. Where he, where he plays, you know, sort of, again, a freakishly large Scottish laddie who ends up, you know, under the tutelage of Alistair Sims, local laird, uh, ends up in the, uh, gets sent to the Melbourne Olympics. What were the 54 Olympics? Melbourne Olympics? 56, I think. Well, 56, 56. Yeah, of course. Mm. 56. Good morning, Mrs. Bazakley, Mr. Quill, uh, Tom. May I introduce Mr. and Mrs. Spencer, the new owners of the Bijou. Mrs. Vazakali, the cashier. How do you do? How do you do, Mrs. Vazakali? Mr. Quill, the projectionist. How do you do? 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 And old... Where's he gone? It's all right, Tom. Mr. and Mrs. Spencer just want to meet you. There's nothing to be nervous about. Old Tom, the janitor. Oh, I guess Oh, yes. Cinema attendance in Britain peaked yeah. in 1946. Yeah. And obviously, it was declining, in well, declined particularly in the 50s due to television. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was reading this in a book, uh, and it it said uh, uh, the television had such widespread appeal, including ITV, which was popular with the working classes. <laughs> uh, I always think I always think the best definition of ITV is the bottom when Eddie <laughs> you know Richie wants to watch uh, a documentary or something yes. on BBC yes. 2 and Eddie says no no ITV's for me lots of sauce nothing to worry about <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, but but obviously so you had you had television you had improved housing conditions and and people were more yeah. wanting to stay at home and other things like people moving to the suburbs and there were fewer cinemas in the suburbs and and obviously that led to the closure of a large number of smaller independent cinemas yeah and and hence we have the Bijou Kinema. But which would have been, as you say, would have been easily recognisable. Mm. Uh, because everybody had... Uh, I mean, this this was true right through to the 80s, by the way. Uh, I'm sure it was... It can't just have been in Glasgow. I'm sure it was every town in Britain. 
every or every you know reasonable sized town in Britain. It had an AV, an ABC, and an Odeon, which were the proper cinemas. Hmm. You know, quite big, reasonably swanky, old Art Deco things or new builds, but you know, like a couple of screens, and you know, comfy, reasonably comfy anyway by those standards of the time but everywhere had its flea pits and they were all called flea pits mm. and there were still some of them hanging on until the 80s but most of them disappeared I think probably in the by the time of the 70s came along but everybody would at the time of this film and you know coming out 57 I mean I, in fact even in the late 70s and early 80s I remember cinemas in Glasgow that were still just clinging on like the Scala Mm. Uh, I saw Tron in the Scala, <laughs> right. uh, and the uh, there were a couple of Cineramas. There, there was a two Cineramas, one in the Sucky Old Street, which was a uh, which is now the Garage Club, mm. and one in Bridge Street, which uh, uh, was the Coliseum originally. There was a cinema that's just gone now; it's knocked down. But they 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 all held on well into the eighties. Hmm. So the you know the 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 mainstream cinema. So the 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 premise here is the grand is, is the the surrogate for the the big, you know, it's got investors because you know there's Francis Wolfe as the owner, but he's got partners, and you see people queuing up, and they're told there's only a couple of seats, individual seats. Wait, you know, uh, and everybody would have recognised you know that because if you wanted to see the latest picture you'd have gone to one of the, the Odeon or the ABC. Yeah, you know. yeah. But if you wanted to go to the pictures to see something that was a bit out of date or or was less comfortable, you could go to the local flea pit. And cheaper. So, and, and cheaper and not as comfortable. And, this, you know, the screen wouldn't have been as big and all that. But, it, you know, but it's a night out. Mm. And, and, and at a time when going to the pictures was just something you did. It was like something you planned. Uh, you just go to the pictures see what's on. Yeah. So the the setup is very uh, is very would have been recognisable for a long time, you know. Afterwards, uh, and the, and the detail in the the Bijou is really great, you know. The fact that it's a converted theatre. Yes, Spencer's Electric Theatre it was called. Spencer's Electric Theatre, yeah. and in fact, the, the the ABC in Glasgow had been the Paramount Electric Theatre. Oh right. Uh, and, and, and actually, in the ABC in Glasgow, there were two halls. And the upstairs hall uh, was, you could see from the outside that it was a theatre if you stood back. Never did that for years, but you, it was very obviously a theatre. And it had a big extension put on next to it, you know, they added different different little halls. But the main two halls, you went upstairs and you, you, you sat in it and you could see it was the extension from the balcony out because it had the rake of the balcony and then it flattened out. And downstairs, if you looked up, you could see where it was. And, and lots of places were like that mm. uh, if they weren't purpose-built cinemas. Yeah. So uh, converted theatre again. And the, the flea pits uh, often, uh, like the Bijou, didn't bother to do any of that sort of work because that was a lot of money. So we'd have stalls in a balcony, you know, in an upper circle and an upper circle and your different prices, sixpence, ninepence, and one, one and two, <laughs> one shilling and tuppence. Yeah. Uh, you know, or, or you know, or, or however much it was for the all all hall, but the, the, but that also the cinema going was far less homogeneous as it was as, as it is now. There were so many different types of cinemas that you went, 
and different chains had different pictures. Uh, well, but... just to cut it, I mean, because I grew up in a town on the back of beyond. Um, and yeah. It had one cinema uh, mm. called St. James, St. James Theatre, it was called. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> I can't remember much about it, but I have memories of watching, going there to watch four or five films, maybe. And I can tell you the films. The first film uh-huh. I ever saw right. was the film of All Creatures Great and Small with my mother, mm. <laughs> which I don't know how old I was. Anthony Hopkins. Is that, that Anthony Hopkins? Um, yeah, I think I think so. I think um, he plays Robert Hardy, doesn't he? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's my Robert Hardy impression. But I must ah! have been... I mean, it was very good. I must have been Thanks. about... Um, Longbows! Ah! <laughs> I must have been about four or five, if that. Totally uh, not in. I was going to say inappropriate. It's not inappropriate for a child, but it's just you know, d- no, definitely weird, dull. You know, <laughs> um, I remember, I remember <laughs> seeing the Rescuers. Uh, I saw my first James Bond film ever. Oh yeah, which was um, View to a Kill, and uh, and I saw. Uh, I remember seeing Annie. Um, oh god, I saw that to the pictures as well. Do you remember it? You, you know that scene in Annie when, if you can, because you're, it'll be seared in your mind, I'm sure, because it was so brutal. But you know the bit where Daddy, where Albert Finney buys every seat in Radio City uh, so that they can watch the film on their own? Right. So he buys every cinema seat so they can sit and watch it on their own. And I remember at the time looking round and <laughs> thinking, has my Uncle Ian bought every seat in here? He's <laughs> 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 <It's> with. <laughs> He's really the only people here as well. <laughs> Life imitating art. Um, so I thought, oh, this is synchronicity. Is this what people do when they go to the pictures? <laughs> I'll have 300 seats, please. <laughs> so the point I was making was the the cinema going was, was much more varied. You know, uh the smaller cinemas, more independent cinemas might have shows on a Saturday morning for kids, for example, or they would have slightly older films, and they would be less comfortable, but they would be cheaper. And, it, you know, there was just... Going to the pictures was a far different experience than it is now. Uh, sure. And that I, I, that's, you know, what if you like... That's why I think the smaller show on Earth... It's particularly good because if you like films about going to the pictures, it's really one of the very best ones that there is. I mean, there are other films like, you know, Cinema Paradiso, which is lovely and it's beautiful and its themes are gorgeous, but they, they don't have, it doesn't have Margaret Rutherford in it. <laughs> uh, so that, 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 I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, that it is also endured because a lot, of, a lot of people like, I think anyway, a lot of people like films about the films yeah uh, because it's something that they recognize it's, it's something that they've taken part in yeah but this uh as another aside <laughs> mm. this brings us on to contemporary themes oh controversial controversial contemporary themes because oh. the behavior of audiences uh, how about that uh. for a controversial theme so in the smallest show on earth, you never see the inside of the grand. Well, I mean, you're in it, you know. You see because they go and see 
uh, Bill and Virginia, as we call them now, mm. they go to see what a real cinema looks like. Mm. I, I don't know why. So they go along and they have a look and they see the hall and you get a sense of the size of it, the scale of it. And of course, there's an organist and they put up a slide to say, you know, you can get your uh, refreshments and they give them the idea to have refreshments and whatever. Uh, but of course, everybody's very well behaved. But then back at the Bijou, people not so well behaved. <laughs> <laughs> you know, couples are snogging in the back. Uh, when something goes wrong with the film, people are catcalling and throwing things. Somebody, you know, there's a fight that somebody has to break up. Uh, people are, are like whispering and talking. And of course, when the, in a great sequence, when the film ends up because uh, the projectionist is drunk, we'll get to Mr. Quill mm. later, but uh, Bill Travers tries to do it himself. And it's just mayhem because the film's upside down. People are standing on their heads. This sort of thing. <laughs> but what it does, uh, what it does signify is, I don't, I don't really know where, what this going on just now, as we record this, is about how people behave in, in cinemas and theatres. I don't know where it's come from. I don't know why it's appeared. I don't know what the point of it is. Because yeah. and all of it baffles me because people are just going to behave the way they behave. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. The 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 the. Day that uh, the day that we're recording this, or the week that we're recording this, there's there's been in the news. There's been reports of um, riots. I think outside was it the Manchester Palace Theatre um, during a performance really? of the Bodyguard, and there were people singing along. Ironic. Uh, yeah, very uh, lustily, uh, shall we say? Yeah, sure. Well, well, as I say, but I mean, when I say I don't know where it's come from, I understand what's happening. I don't understand is why it's suddenly a problem now <laughs> because people have behaved the way they behave in public spaces you know since Roman perform you know performances in Roman amphitheaters yeah you know I could imagine I can imagine in deleted scenes from Clash of the Titans Burgess Meredith sitting going I wish they would shut up when I'm doing the doing the serious bits <laughs> but what this demonstrates and what I think is interesting about this at this point in time is the attitudes of the audience are different depending on the surroundings. It's a cheap hall, it's a bit rickety, the seats are crap and all that sort of thing. So they behave in a sort of more outlandish manner mm. because that's what happens. I remember uh, per my personal experience, and this has only ever happened to me once, I have to say, uh, we very rarely went to the pictures when I was a kid because it was, you know, it was. I mean, it's brutally expensive now, but you know, it was. It was quite expensive. It's always been quite expensive in a sense, and it's not something we did an awful lot of. You know, we weren't casual cinema goers. Yeah. Uh, so my only experience of going to the pictures was going to see major films, uh, like Water with Sorry Michael Caine, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, please. I did see that in the pictures. <laughs> I know you did. That's why I mentioned it. Oh, God. Oh, spare me. Show me no mercy, give me no bail. I'm ready and willing to go to jail. Thanks, <laughs> Billy Conley, one of your classics. Uh, but anyway, my dad did a particular thing where if he wanted to see a film, he couldn't just say, let's go to the pictures. He would try and say, he would, he would make it like he was indulging us. 
So, like, when Raiders of the Lost Ark was a bunch of how can you see that? There's always very dad films, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's why we saw, like, Flash Gordon. And Indiana Jones and his dad was the textbook one. Mm. Oh, yeah, uh, Last, uh, Last Crusade. Yeah, yeah, Indiana Jones and his dad. Mm. So, <laughs> uh, so we very rarely went to just buy your buy films, you know what I mean? Just filler, filler films. Yeah. Except one Saturday morning, I don't know why, just to get us out of the house, and 50 pence was pressed into our hand, and we were told to go to the ABC and Muir End because there was a showing in the Saturday morning of a film. Once he gets out of the house. And uh, where we live, Muir End in the south side of Glasgow, I mean, it was a fair trek. For, by the way, three kids, <laughs> the youngest of whom, no, maybe my sister wasn't there, but certainly me and my brother would have been like 10 and 13 maybe mm. and we walked about three miles and the the abc even though it was an abc the abc muir end was the was like a flea pit and it was a converted theater it, it still had the balcony and all that and it was a kid showing on a saturday morning of rocky four and it was bedlam right it was like it was like the, it was like the scene in Gremlins. Oh yeah, it was just, and I was like appalled. <laughs> it's like a tiny appalled person because <laughs> I just thought everybody would get into trouble. I don't know who I thought would get everybody into trouble because they'd have had to have been like they'd have had to kettle everybody with right or because <laughs> it was like six hundred kids like climbing the walls, throwing popcorn, and climbing over the stairs and they only paid any attention to the screen when the actual fight happened Yeah, at the end yeah. and when he, not even with the Apollo gets killed earlier on, spoilers but when he fights Drago at the end there was like massive cheers with one and the other and all this sort of thing and then we all came sort of blinking into the light afterwards covered in popcorn and like bits <laughs> of hot dog and just wet from Kiora <laughs> Uh, like totally baffled by what had just happened so anyway the point being people behave in different ways depending on the circumstances welcome to the world yeah yeah <laughs> and I'm sure don't tell me that there haven't been umpteen performances of musicals where people have been happily sitting singing along to them why else would you go frankly uh, anyway it just seems to chime the this this current obsession seems to chime with the themes and the smallest show on earth. A film, as you say, from sixty six years ago. Well, and also because <clears throat> one of the things you you mentioned, you know, the, the the film was upside down at one point. It was going backwards. It was sped up. Yep. <laughs> but but there's also the fact that the the kinema is built under a railway line. Whenever, yes. uh, whenever the 720 goes past, <laughs> it causes the fixtures and fittings to rattle. Causes everything to rattle and shake. And, and the audience kind of incorporate it into the film that they're watching, don't they? It's sort of early, yeah. uh, early sense around. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's, what I love is they, they don't really overtly say that they've tried to do this. It would have been really fun if there was a little scene where they timed the film, you know, deliberately. Because when they're watching, the audience are watching the screen and the train is coming, 
and then the train, you know, the train's actually so it's a western. Yeah. And the train's coming. Yeah. Through the through the desert, and the train arrives at the platform, and the audience all start clapping and cheering. Yep. <laughs> Amazing. But then, of course, the comedy bit comes when the train stops because the 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 the, the let's, in, well, it's let's, let's, yeah, there's a platform. Mm. <laughs> so that gets a laugh. But then, of course, later on, when there's a desert picture, uh, the mystery of Hell Valley, the mystery of Hell Valley, yeah. they, they 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 put on the heating and gets cranked up, so they're all sweat gobs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you, the, there's a love. There's, there's uh, it's just just a lovely little uh, little uh, little thing about how they're because of course this is all part of uh, the premise again to get back to the premise, which is they have to try and make the cinema work in a, in some way to get the major cinema nearby to buy it. Yeah, uh, because they want to knock it down to build a car park or something. Yes, yeah, so, that's the that's the premise. So, so Bill Travers and his wife, they've inherited this little dilapidated, yeah. crumbling cinema. Yeah, and they're told by Leslie Phillips, the the solicitor, that um, before he died, their Uncle Simon had been offered uh, five thousand pounds by um, your man, the bluff Yorkshireman. Who's it? What's his yeah, name? Mr. Hardcastle. Mr. Hardcastle. 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 Francis Wolf, the great Francis Wolf. Yeah, who we'll come back to, but he's the owner of the Grand, and he'd offered Simon £5,000 to sell the Bijou to him so yep. that he could build a car park. And and by the way, that's just short, short in today's money, that's just short of £100,000. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, a lot of money. Bill McKenna, Bill McKenna, <laughs> Bill yeah, Travers. Bill Travers. Bill Travers. Uh, is that like the Spice Girls name for them as a couple? <laughs> Bill McKenna. <laughs> so he he thinks, oh well, look, you know, we can make a hundred grand out of this. This is this is great. So they go to to see Hardcastle, and Hardcastle, who's a very sentimental man, he likes to <laughs> he likes to mention that once or twice. Um, the the offer has dropped, has dropped yeah. to first five hundred, then seven hundred and fifty pounds. I'm prepared to consider your offer very seriously. Here, all fast a minute, lad. What offer are you talking about? Well, your offer of five thousand pounds. Five thousand pounds? Five thousand pounds? <laughs> oh, he's oh, a great one, your husband, just like his great uncle. <laughs> five thousand pounds. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> oh, that's a great one, that is. 
<laughs> I wanted to be more like it. But I don't understand. You offered my great uncle. Oh, I know, lad, but that was a long time ago, before television it is. <laughs> and the Bijou was a going concern then. Have you seen it now, lad? <laughs> no, I'm only offering you 500 pounds, and that's a good deal more than the old flea pit's worth. If I may interrupt, Mr. Hardcastle, an offer of 500 pounds is quite out of the question for my client. Well, there are debts of at least 750. 750? Well, uh, well, all right. Everyone knows I'm a sentimental man, and I liked old Simon. 750, then, but not a penny more. I'm sorry, Mr. Hardcastle. I didn't mean that figure to be taken as one which my client would be prepared to accept. No, but that's the figure I'm prepared to offer. <laughs> 750, and no more. So they, so they, kept, well, I think Leslie Phillips comes up with this plot to to try and convince Hardcastle that they're going to to try and do it up to to run it as a going concern. Yeah. So that he ups his offer, um, and they also have to make sure that the staff believe it. And this is where I think the point that we are introduced to the the staff. Yeah. There's a splendid scene where uh, they're they're brought to the Bill and Jenny. <laughs> mm. are brought to the uh, the doors of the kingdom and introduced to the staff and they're the, just sort of presented to you <laughs> in this like line up as if you know they're, they're like the new prime minister arriving yeah and it's margaret rutherford yeah as mrs fazakali a great name uh peter sellers our man peter as a persequil projectionist mm. and bernard miles uh, I don't think I think it was just Bernard Miles at the time. I don't think it was Sir Bernard at that point. Not sure. Later, later Lord Miles uh, as old Tom, the caretaker. Yeah. And they're a, they're properly grotesque. Mrs. Fazakali is is dressed in jet and jet beads, and she's in full mourning for Uncle Simon because. You know, there's a suggestion that they had been a bit more than just employee and employer. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Quill is, despite Roger Lewis's mistake of a Northern accent, is just playing the probably the, the most live version we'll ever have seen of William Mate Cobblers. Yeah. Uh, the the shuffle, the voice, the the repetition, the talking under his breath. You know. Uh, it's all there. Tell him about my equipment. I'm explaining to him about the rats. My equipment's more important than your rats. Tell him about mine. My... Yeah. And he's he's sort of, uh, for a man at the time who would have been 32, mm-hmm. or 31 perhaps, yeah. when it was being filmed, yeah. he really uh, sells being an older guy. He does. He really uh, does. He's, he really does. It's, and it's, it's less to do with the makeup, which is minimal. He's got some talcum powder in his hair yeah uh, and I, I suppose a bit of makeup but it's all in the posture and the 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 the, the hooded of the hooded eyes and the slump mm. it's just it's a it's it completely inhabits the character i know these are terrible cliches to say about the way sellers work but he really inhabits the character mm. he just doesn't look like peter sellers he is percy quill yeah but actually, at the same time, Bernard Miles is is also absolutely fantastic. I mean, Margaret Rutherford played Margaret Rutherford. We love Margaret Rutherford. She's fantastic. And she's great to be in, and there she is. But that's what she is. 
Well, I, I, th- by- I think Bernard Miles, the same year, I think it was 57, yeah. it might have been 58, that The Man Who Knew Too Much comes out. Oh, right, right. Okay. Uh, the, Hitchcock's, the remake, Hitchcock's remake of his own film. Yeah. Um, and it, it was certainly around this time. And Bernard Miles was one of the key cast in that film. And Good. and he I mean, he looks because he was a, a lot younger than than old yeah. Tom. Well, that's what I was just going to say because he's only about fifty. Uh, but he's I mean he, he he completely sells the idea. You know that uh, I know it's a terrible thing to say about about the elderly, but the frustration of saying something and it not getting through, and then them repeating it back yeah. to you and all that sort of thing. Yeah. He, captures that absolutely perfectly he has the terrible lower set of teeth that don't quite fit he has that sound of ill-fitting dentures you know the hair and the the, the shambling sort of a uh, walk or gait mm. it, it's just extraordinary in fact it, it reminds me a lot when i was looking at it it reminded me a lot of a uh, lampwick yes uh, and oh, I wonder. It made me wonder on, on what's that yeah. again. Yeah, I wonder if Dick Emery took a bit of lampwick out of that. Mm. The, you know the sort of you know that you know the chewing on the bottom teeth. Mm. Mm. Oh no, no, you know that. And the and <laughs> it's just so it was. It's just so like him. Anyway, he's fixated. He wants. He's a. He wants a new. He wants a commissioner's uniform like they have in the Grand. That's all he wants to make his life perfect. By the way, Bernard Miles plays the the, the same kind of aged character um, six years later in Heavens Above, but the the, yes. the the difference being that he's a right bastard. In yeah, Heavens no, Above. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, every, well, Heavens Above is an interesting uh, comparison to draw because uh, in this sort of period of. Uh, you know the black and white years hmm. of sellers, the sellers canon. Uh, the the smallest show on the earth is entirely sympathetic. You know, if Bill Bill Travis and Virginia McKenna are actually for for quite posh, literally they're quite posh. You know, they do see they don't look like they've dug many roads. You know. <laughs> uh, they're, but they're quite. But for all that, they're not that terrible sort of jolly uh, hockey sticks kind of, uh, you know, uh, type where you really couldn't care less. She what is. She is a them. bit. She is a bit. Yeah. Well, she is. She is a bit. But you know, like she's matches with Bill. She must be all right. Yeah. 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 And uh, but you know, all of the characters, even Hardcastle, is just silly. Yeah. yeah. You know, even though they pull off a pretty nasty trick. Mm. Uh, later on, mm. but it, you know it, it's 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 all very broad. It, I, I'm, but I don't mean broad in a derogatory or a pejorative sense. It's 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 a full on comedy, is what I'm trying to say. It's uh, there's a bit of pathos in it, but you know, you know, when you get to other films, however, like, uh, uh, well, I, I'm alright, Jack. For example, has its message. Yeah. Uh, Bolting Brothers. But heavens, of yeah, Bolting Brothers, quite. Uh, but uh, Heavens Above is a really problematic film in a lot of ways because there are so many really nasty characters in it. Yeah, yeah. Almost everybody is awful. 
and I know that's supposedly, you know, kind of maybe that's meant to be the point because the Reverend Smallwood is so innocent and unworldly, and is so pure, in a sort of proto Chauncey Gardner kind of way. Because uh, I can see there's, I think there's quite a lot of the Reverend Smallwood in Chauncey Gardner. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the people who revolve around them are almost uniformly terrible. And, you know, very different degrees of comedy, like Eric Sykes and Miriam Carlin's family are just terrible. <laughs> I rewatched Heavens Above, as you know, recently, and yep. watched it with some friends. And a couple of my friends commented, one of them said, uh, till he said, um, he said, if, if Heavens Above was a drama rather than a comedy, Peter yeah. Sellers wouldn't have had to change his performance at all. No, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And you see what I don't, means. I, yeah. I don't think very many people would have had to. I, I, I think Heavens Above, that's why I say it's problematic in the sense that it's only a comedy because you're told it is. Hmm. Because what happens to everybody is pretty it's pretty awful. I mean, there are some fun, obviously there's a lot of funny stuff in it. I think there are there's a lot. Because Eric Sykes' performance is, is, is great. Uh, Steve Marriott in that as well. Now, the three in one, in whose name? You're late, Jack. I had to do something for me dad. I see. Well, we were just having a few questions. Can you tell me what we mean by the three in one? Frank, relax, mister. <laughs> no, Jack, that is not the answer. Sit down, boy. Does anybody else know? Yes, Percy? Father, son and Holy Ghost. Good. Now we're getting somewhere. Uh, but like little Louis Mancy yeah. appears uh, and has that... What He's a wonderful scene where he's he's <laughs> getting all the food and he's going, like, a packet of crunchy bits, a pack of... Uh, and eventually he goes to pay off being... And a bottle of sauce, and she says, the sauce is something's the last thing you need, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a prototype you know, uh, food bank, wasn't it? This effect. Well, yes, effectively, and this is what I think so. What's so interesting about it because you know the premise of Heaven's Above is Heaven's Smallwood arrives in what had been or or weird name of a town, Orbison Parva, mm. which is set up as a typical English town where where it's like you know pretty middle class but pretty reasonably comfortable. There's a big factory that makes uh, tranquilizers, and everybody works there. And that trickles out to the town. And there's a big house with the rich family, the aristocrats who own this tranquilizer factory. And uh, there's a sort of round table types, you know, rotary types, or Masonic types, I suppose. You know, the Eric Barker, who's the bank manager, William Hartnell, who's the sort of some sort of retired army type that has some money. You know, they're all going to invest in a new site. Yeah, and they ex they expect the minister, the, the 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 priest, the Anglican priest, to be as docile as the incumbent, as 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 the last one who's just died, and of course, who turns up from the inner city, but the Reverend Smallwood, uh, who's been sent by the bishop, who is God. Uh, which is the Pipkins? Uh, oh, George uh, Woodbridge. George Woodbridge. Mm. Uh, almost as a joke. <laughs> it seems like a mistake. Mm. 
and of course the great uh, uh, Cecil Parker yeah. is the sort of archdeacon who's almost like the archdeacon in Rev you know because he's he's very worldly you know that you know Rev the sitcom. Oh, I haven't watched. That. I saw that when it. Uh, God, it was a few. He's a sort of mm. a sort of Simon McBurney character who's mm. who's the Archbishop, but he's spent times on people's super yachts, and uh, you know talks about you know how it's virtuous to be rich and all this sort of thing. And and the Reverend Smallwood opens effectively, basically opens a food bank. Yeah. Uh, and he gets all the shops to donate food to it. People can come and get what they need. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to pay. Yeah. But it's not really a food bank in the sense that it's set up the way we'd see it now. Because, of course, what happens is greed takes over and people just come and get a shopping at it. Yeah. Even if they can afford it. Yeah. Then the local uh, tradesmen are up in arms because nobody's buying anything from them. And he also persuades, Smallwood also persuades the matriarch of the senator's family to hand over all of their money and all that to the food bank. <laughs> and then, of course, it basically ends in a lynch mob. Yeah. Uh, and it just it just ends into chaos. And li- and ends with Smallwood literally being shot into space. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that the system can find for him to do is be shot into the moon <laughs> as the as the bishop of outer space. We should we should add that he's not meant to be shot into the moon. No, he, he does, takes he, the place of he takes the place of Britain's first astronaut. He does. He he elects to do that. He decides to do do that. Um, the the first and only act that we see of I, I presume we don't see it, but it implied violence by mm. Smallwood. Uh, what, how do you mean? Well, because he because he. Tied up and gagged. Oh yes, yes. I beg your pardon. You mean so? Oh, that's the bit. Yes, yes. That's about the only thing he he does. Uh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's a good point. Um, because because he's very passive all the way through it, and he he does everything that contradicts the sort of social mores at the time. He has a black verger with, with lets, Brock, Brock Peters from um, uh, yes. to kill a, mock, a mockingbird. Yeah, the Brock Peters. Yeah, and and and, and many other things. And, uh, Eric Sykes and his tribe move on to the move into the vicarage, and of course, they, but this is what's so this is what's so interesting about it. Why I, I, you you were one of those things when you say, could they make it now, or they couldn't make it now, because the the working class or underclass family of Eric Sykes, who's on the panel for his cough, Miriam Carlin and the daughters, you know, that all the children. Mm. The first thing they do is rob everybody blind. Mm. They're already they're already working the system in terms of benefits. But then when they move, when when Smallwood moves them into the manse, uh, they 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 take him for everything he's got. They sort of feel a wee bit bad about it. <laughs> but it's the Bolting brothers all over because I said this when we, when I when we talked about. I'm all right, Jack. It's like the Boltings are saying a curse on all your houses. The, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the 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 church, the establishment, the working classes, the underclasses, all as bad as yeah. each other. There are no virtuous people in this. You know, Smallwood is like uh, is the analogous to Ian Carmichael. Oh yeah. And I'm all right, Jack. Every, you know the en- everybody the, the innocent. This film is so full of faces. By the way, it's um. 
<laughs> it's got everybody in it apart from ironically david lodge or graham stark um, <laughs> but but we've 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 strayed quite quite a, a distance yes indeed we have um okay so listen that's the end of part one of our chat and please listen out next week for part two um, of my chat with with chris uh where we talk in more detail about the smaller show on earth and we stop talking so much about heavens above uh, that's 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 a subject for another podcast so uh thank you for listening this week and uh please follow on twitter it's at goon show pod please join the facebook group it's um just called goon pod please rate and review as well if you can on apple podcasts that would be fab so i will see you next week for part two of the smallest show on earth bye